Welcome to selfdiscoveryradio.com where the orchard of wisdom is just ready for picking. We celebrate your why, the journey that you've taken that inspires someone else. We support your services. We support your story. Come and be our guest. Become a host. Be an author with us. Come see what we've got. Our next show is... Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, everybody. Welcome back to another edition of Your Health is Your Choice. I'm your host, Sarah Troy, and my guest today is Deb Morgan. I had her here last year where we talked about fibromyalgia. You know, that disease that's still a big question mark for a lot of people. It's not just one thing. It's a multiple things under an umbrella. In fact, it's 31 things under the umbrella of the title of fibromyalgia. It's still very confusing for doctors and very, very confusing of how we treat it. Is the disease it is now? Um, is it something you can only manage? Can you be cured from it? There's so many levels to that. And we talked in depth about that. So I invite you to go back and listen to that show where we did talk about fibromyalgia and how it changes our lives but what we can do to empower ourselves. But today is a different story. Today is about opioids. Yeah, we're seeing a crisis about that right now, aren't we? Where is this coming about? What is this pandemic about? So often we hear somebody has had an accident or an illness and they're given opioids for the pain. And it seems to be such an addictive drug that they need more and more and more of it. And you're saying, yeah, but what about the junkie that's on the street with the opioids? You'll probably find they either got it from um, mum or dad's um, cabinet, or it's, um, it's just another one of those things that they seek out because it takes away the pain. But Physical pain is something that sometimes we need to really uh, help with drugs in order to get control of it, to take the edge off. And then we have to learn how to manage that pain in other ways. So, you know, these drugs aren't, aren't we're not talking anti-drugs here. Everything has its use. But why are we putting a drug out there that it has such an addiction? I've done another show on this where the guy from the opioids became an opioid pusher. You know, gun under his pillow, police chasing him, all of that. And until he kind of came to a screeching stop and goes, what the hell? How did I become this? And this is the thing. It starts off in one way. So let's find out Deb's journey of how she started off on the opioid journey uh, that led her down a different path. Welcome to the show, Deb. Thank you. How are you? I'm doing great. And you? <laughs> yeah, doing good. Good now. And that's yes, the point. Very good now and not so good 24 years ago. Yeah. <laughs> and of course, 24 years ago, we're still looking at drugs just being the answer to everything, right? Holistic medicine right. alternative was just woo-woo and only for people who are out there. Uh, yeah. Nobody understood the value of it. The drug was all. So mm. to be giving you opioids is, uh, was nothing, you know, just go and take. Oh, no, they would hand them out like candy. Mm -hmm. I think it's what you do with that. Um, like when I got addicted, it was because of a surgery, early hysterectomy. Mm. Then I decided, well, I still need to be on pills. So I went in and they did a laparoscopy. So I'm still on pills, you know. Mm -hmm. and, and when those pills run out, then you do what everybody does now, which is, or did now, which is doctor shop. Mm -hmm. So you go to doctor's offices and you've got this or you've got that. Or I went to dentists and would get things done to my teeth that I did not need. Right. Just to get opioids. Right. So pretty soon, um, 
I did something back then. It probably wasn't very well known back then. I mean, actually, and you, you hear about it now and I'm like, oh my God, I hope I didn't start a trend. You know, it was just horrible. But I started um, taking the prescription pads. At that point in time, you could take a prescription pad out of a doctor's office and that you could write it. I mean, if you had the guts to do that, I suppose right, yes. desperate enough, which was me. Um, so, you know, I would grab the pads out of a doctor's office. Unfortunately, addicts are not stupid. No, no. Anything, mm-hmm. Yeah. If there's anything that a family member or anybody out there who's dealing with it or whatever, we are not stupid, but we can lie mm-hmm. like the quickest breeze of a wind, mm-hmm. you know, to get ourselves out of something. So I took prescription pads. I began writing them in every name possible and passing them. And we have different counties in Colorado, like we do in Oregon, but we didn't in Arizona. Um, I didn't do it there, but in Colorado, I must've passed them in, I don't know, maybe six, seven counties because they're all right around each other. And um, so once I started doing that, um, I could get by with that. And I wrote, Percocet, which they didn't check. They never called the doctor. Mm-hmm. They never did anything. And there was no watermark on the back, you know, of these or anything. And at the time, I I was a mother. Like, I was a soccer-type mom, mm-hmm. you know, um, the Girl Scouts, the Boy Scouts, you know, the whole thing. Uh, I did everything with my kids. I had a good job. I went to work every day. I took, you know... And I still went through 100 Percocet a week by the time that I would get finally help, but I would get caught to do it. Now, can you tell me, because I'm not very good with painkillers, they, you know, um, I have an adverse reaction. You know, I might be fine initially, and then it completely works oppositely with me, or I um, you know, overreact. If you give me something that's a sleeping pill too hot, I'm bombed, gone, <laughs> finished. Right. Um, but how, well, how did A, did it make you feel that you nearly, you know, needed to have to go back to it? And then how the hell did you function on so much of that? Because you're in a permanent state of alternative beingness. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you are. And, and you, when I, medi- when I self-medicated, I didn't know anything about what was going to happen down the road. Right. Why, why was I, do- I didn't even ever think about why I was doing it. Mm-hmm. There was no ever, but when I started taking them, I didn't have, like at the very beginning, you know, you feel some sort of euphoria or high or whatever it is. And you chase that. Mm-hmm. I've got to say that from the time I started drinking at 12 till the time I started doing this, you know, you, you chase that first high, you never get it again, but you chase it. Yeah. And so then what happens is, is that your body begins to get used to it. Right. Now, right. this is why you hear about people dying. Whitney Houston mm-hmm. and Nicole Smith, all the you know, stars that have died that we hear so much about where we don't hear it about regular people. Um, you start to take more. And then your tolerance gets higher. Mm-hmm. So you start to take more. And, you know, people who are at, uh, alcoholics, true alcoholics people who are actually going to drink themselves to death 
I've known several and my grandfather was one. Mm -hmm. um, you know, he never had to hide it. But a lot of them will hide bottles everywhere. Right. There'll be bottles under the sink. There'll be mm -hmm. bottles in the, in the, everywhere, yeah. in the closet, in the garage, you know. And um, I did the same thing with pills. Mm -hmm. You know, getting that many pills a week was a second job. Um, and I didn't realize it, you know, how, how much pressure I must have been under to just keep that amount going and have extra, you know, bottles of pills so that I could make sure and always have a backup. Right. You never wanted to run out. That was the one thing you never wanted to do. So it became a fear. In other words, you actually became a slave to the drug. Yes. Oh, yeah. yeah. My life was, yeah. I mean, like I said, I could be the normal. I had to be. I had mm -hmm. to be the normal mom, the normal worker. I had to be the normal wife so my husband would never see it. Mm -hmm. um, my second husband was very controlling. And so, you know, there was no room for error. Right. Yeah. Yes. Yes. You know, and and he he wasn't quite, I mean, he wasn't intelligent enough, I hate to say, to be able to notice there was something wrong with me. Mm -hmm. um, and, and sometimes it's not caring. No. And as long no, as it no. doesn't interfere with their life and food on the table right. and everything else, it's like, I don't care how she does it as long as I get what I need from her. Yeah. And, and his thing was beer. Right. Or exactly. whatever. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we'd still drink on the weekends and I'd still take Percocet when I drank, just mm -hmm. not as many. Now that one was really something to me later. I thought, what was I thinking? You know, I could have died. Oh, exactly. And, I, and, and then, know, of course, then there's the getting behind the wheel of a car because you, in your own irrational mind, you thought, I'm perfectly all I right. Right, exactly. Yeah, right. And you don't realize you're, you are impaired because this has become your new norm, hasn't it? Yes. You, know, it is you are just purely the drug at this point, so you wouldn't know what to gauge as normal anymore. No. And it's, it, it's something that it's hard to explain. And if you're going through it, the denial. Yes. Oh my God. The denial is, I, I can't even explain how bad it is until, until you start to take a look at it mm -hmm. uh, from, from a, an aspect that you don't want to go to. Yeah. Um, I mean, in my case, I had a childhood that if my mother and grandmother would have thrown me across a four lane highway, that would have been the only thing they could have done worse mm. than what they did mm -hmm. and so you know when you're uh in a position where you're a st stolen child basically mm -hmm. from one person to the other and you yeah. live in this constant fear of drama yeah you know you grow up with horrible um trauma. you're traumatized you know, horrible yeah, yeah horrible trauma mm -hmm. and you don't know that either no because of the post-traumatic stress, the trauma, right. the, you know, all of that, because you, this has become, you look for any way to survive, any way to, you know, uh, empower yourself. And of course, when you step into the drugs or the alcohol, it's a false illusion that you are in, in control. Yeah. That because it's, normal. yeah. And because you really are numbing the pain. Right. So yeah. I, after after I, I mean, I went over a year, well over a year, uh, probably closer to two doing this. And I think what happens with people is you start to make mistakes. Yeah. Everybody starts to make mistakes and you don't know you're making mistakes. Right. 
but you start to, and it's almost like a, uh, it's almost like a reaction, mm-hmm. you know, to the, to the fact that your body is trying to tell you something, maybe, yes. you know, like you're going to die, you know, really, um, mm-hmm. without being standing in front of you, you know, a total version of you looking at you going, you're going to die. Um, you don't realize that, but I think you start making the tiniest of mistakes. And mm-hmm. one day I passed a prescription at um, a Kmart pharmacy and not anywhere by where I lived, but close to where I worked. And what they did was they, instead of calling the cops and making a big deal about it there, which actually was the right way to handle that. They got my, they got my, you know, license off my car. Ah. When I pulled out and at that point, then that started the ball rolling mm-hmm. for what would eventually be a knock at my door. But until I look back at these papers, I didn't realize how many actual investigations were going on around this one, this one incident that could have put me in prison until now. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe longer. And so I, 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 you know, never thought anything of it. You know, I kept doing it, never thought anything of it. And, um, I went to, I remember this so vividly. You never forget some of no. this. Stuff. It just never goes away. And it's a good thing. Mm-hmm. It's, a good, it's a good reminder. As long, yeah. yeah. As long as you remember, you can, you know, ha- halfway deal with it. Um, so I went to a, um, you know, like a school field trip with my daughter, which I didn't get the chance to do very often because I worked. And we came home and that evening, knock, knock on the door. No big deal, but who is it? You know what I mean? Like who's knocking on our door at eight o'clock at night Mm -hmm. and open the door and it was officers. And at that moment I knew immediately why they were there. Mm -hmm. And the first thing that came into my head was how in the heck am I going to line myself out of this one? Yeah. Not how am I going to get help? Right. Yeah. That wasn't the first thing I thought. No. No. So they wanted me to come down and they served me with papers to come down and do a uh, writing sample and talk to the sergeant. And at that point, I had to tell my husband what he was standing right there. You know, I mean, you couldn't, I couldn't hide. No. Nowhere to go. Um, Kids were in bed. So it didn't affect them directly at that point um it would have it would affect them later but in a positive way um i guess if i wouldn't have handled it the way i did possibly not and i think parents try to hide too much sometimes yes when they should be age appropriately telling them as you go along yeah don't go down this road right you know where it goes yeah and um so i went down there and he gave me a writing test and he basically came back and said, I know this is you. And I said, I know it's me too. I was just done. Yeah. At that point, I was just done. I knew I had an attorney already before the next day when I went down there. He wasn't with me, but he was an excellent attorney. And I mean, I could have, I could have fought and I could have, no. They would have found out so many more mm-hmm. that I, it would have been horrible and I was so afraid they were going to anyway and at that point I thought well it's just this one yeah 
if I can get help or do something, I've got to do something. Yeah. And my mother was a deputy sheriff, my grandmother who raised me. So of course I knew about laws Uh and what to do, what not to do, you know, constantly. But I, uh, I, I told him, you know, he looked at me and he goes, I know that if I check other counties, I'm going to find you in those. And he said, so I don't want to do that. And I thought, you know, I mean, you don't want to do it. What are you talking about? This yes. Could be, <laughs> yeah. well, this could be, be a barn burner away. for yeah. you. <laughs> yeah. This could be the best thing that ever happened to you. Right. And um, he said, I, I want you to do, if you will do this, he said, I will make sure that you are not arrested on a warrant and you won't go to jail. And I thought that one person yes. that you don't, ever expect to be Mm -hmm. the person that will help you Mm -hmm. is the person that you have no idea who they are and rank and file they're Mm -hmm. so far ahead of you Mm -hmm. and um you know he i think what he wanted was he saw me and of course i didn't look like you know your normal you know i mean whatever normal dealer on the street you know kids and um, or taking advantage of other people you were just simply an addict yeah i mean literally i would steal things from stores take them back at the store once i stole it i they got to that point because i couldn't get money from my husband so it was like it was this huge yes you couldn't unravel this ball if you tried to. Right. You know? And so I told him I would go. And so he gave me a couple of examples of places I could go. I had insurance at that time that would pay for it, which is unusual back then because mm-hmm. I guess there wasn't that many people, you know, in 1980 or 92, I guess, that were doing that. I, you know, and so I was, um, I checked into one that had to do with the hospital that I'd been in with my kids. And um, I went there the following day. And I, you know, when I got there, it was such a nice place. I mean, you walked in, you know, there was, it was gorgeous. Mm -hmm. Like the foyer part, you know, it was Mm -hmm. gorgeous. The whole campus looked so nice. Well, dumb, you know, I'm just an idiot at this point, And I think I'm going to get out of this. Well, before I even went into that place, the first, uh, you can ask almost probably 90% of addicts, maybe more. The last thing you do before you go to rehab is whatever your drug of choice is. Right. That one last fix. Yeah. Right? You yeah. And you do more than... You, you would should. normally do mm-hmm. so that you can get through that, yes. just that one part. So they took me through. Everything was gorgeous. Thought I, they went through my bag, made sure I didn't have anything alcoholic. And I mean, literally, mm-hmm. if there was alcohol on your toothpaste, you weren't using it. Right. If there was alcohol, like mouthwash, you couldn't use it. You couldn't have anything that was alcohol. You could have cigarettes, thank God, because I smoked. Mm-hmm. But, you know, that was it. They weren't going to take every single thing away. They left cigarettes. But other than that, I mean, it was going to be a, you know, a boot camp. Yes. And I didn't know it. So I walked down with this guy behind him and I looked around and I thought, well, this doesn't look too bad. 
you know, I can get through this and then I can go back out and then I can do what I was doing before. Right. And I'm like, after all this, why did I think that, you know? Yeah. So I walked in the door and all I can remember is it was almost like being in a jail cell. The, the door was so heavy when it hit behind me, it sounded just like you know, cool yeah. Doors. yeah, the that bang. Mm -hmm. And on one side of it, I heard people screaming. Ooh. And on the other side, I didn't hear anything. Mm. So I wasn't sure if I was going to the morgue or if I was going to the, you know, the other side and that was going to be me, you know. And um, so they took me in. They took my picture. They took, uh, they did everything. Mm. They had paperwork and, you know, just every possible thing that they could ask you or whatever. I mean, weight, height, everything. And then all about what you did and I just the whole thing. Mm -hmm. And it now exposure time. Yeah. Right. And you don't. You don't tell them the whole thing. No. You know, you only tell them what you want them to know at that yeah. point. They put you in a room in a bunk with a couple of people. But I think what really starts to happen and when you really start to change is you go start going to meetings every day. I mean, there's meetings all day long, every single one's different. Um, you get time to smoke, you have to ask if you want something to drink, there's no caffeine, you eat at a certain time, everybody eats together, you eat lunch, you eat breakfast, you eat dinner, you, the whole thing is all regimented mm -hmm. as if you were in yeah. the army, basically. Right. So we got into meetings and I, I didn't realize what that was going to be, but what happened was they started asking everyone in the room to go around and tell you know, basically who they were and what they did. And because there was like me and a couple other people that were new. And um, so they said somebody had their arms crossed. And they said nobody has arms crossed in this meeting. It's bad body language. And it tells you that there's things that people don't want to give up. Right. So people don't want to talk about things when they start to fold their arms. Mm hmm and my arms, of course, were folded and probably, you know, I'm surprised I could breathe. Right. Um, but they went around and I was listening to some of the stories and, um, you know, there was people that were anesthesiologists that would siphon fentanyl off of patients. There was, you know, people who've done everything. Right. From alcohol to heroin and everything in between. People who were nurses, people who were, you know, in the medical yes. field. It's, it's, very, it's, it's a very high abuse in the medical field, actually. That's right. Mm -hmm. It is. It's, it's, even now, yeah. where they put so many safety measures in place. Mm -hmm. still and so they came to me. I knew it was coming. <laughs> and they asked me, you know, to explain what I did and everything. And they said, unfold your arms. You know, folded arms in here. I mean, they were pretty mm -hmm. strict about it. And I said, and I didn't. And they got kind of started getting mad because it wasn't listening. And so they kind of, the guy, the counselor yelled at me and said, unfold your arms. And I remember looking at him and going, I can't. And he said, what do you mean you can't? And I, he said, you can and you will. And I said, I can't because my guts will fall out. Mm. Everything. And he would, he said, I understand that. I, I hear that a lot. But he said, you'll never get better if you don't start 
doing what we tell you to do in here because it's really going to make a difference. And that was the first day that I actually started what would become a real recovery. Right. Was when my body language got better. When I learned that when they ask you a question about how you felt and I had no feelings. Yes. And I'd say I'm mad. And they say mad's not a feeling. Mm -hmm. I had to learn every feeling yeah. that you normally would have instead of saying, you know, I'm ticked off, I'm mad, I'm this, I'm that. The English language all over again because I couldn't think of any. Right. You know, I, I couldn't think of anything. And so I learned, you know, how to establish a, a feeling pattern. Yeah. And um, those people became the people that I trusted. Those yes. counselors, um, those the people who worked, who got me off the drug, they took me off the right way. They took me off slowly. Yes. They understood what they were doing. They took me off of, and put me on another drug and didn't take me off the same drug I was on. They did everything. Yeah. Um, and I still went through withdrawals. Percocet has to be the second worst to heroin is what they say mm -hmm. as far as withdrawals. So no matter what happens, you're going to you go through it. Last, yeah. You take yeah. that last pill and you don't have any idea what's coming. Right. And right. It, it wasn't, it wasn't good. I mean, it wasn't fun and it took, it didn't take me as long, but they would not let me stay in the room and withdraw. I had to get up and do every single thing that everybody else did during mm -hmm. that time. But it was important. You mm -hmm. know, I look back now and think <clears throat> how important that was to not let me, you know. Wallow uh, in the suffering. Yeah, yeah. don't, you know, don't let me feel sorry yeah. for myself yeah. and don't. Yeah, don't do it, you know, all the things that they were trying to teach me not to do. Right, yeah. So, so I definitely um, started to appreciate those people. And you have to learn to trust again, and they do exercises for that. And then they found out that I had an eating disorder, which I did. I would, you know, not eat for four days and then eat one day and then overeat one day and then mm. not, you know, and was put in the hospital for not eating. I, this whole thing before it ever became... About yes. The drugs. Yeah. About something else. Mm -hmm. And so um, they brought a doctor in to talk to me about mental problems that I might be having. I think they they spotted them probably <clears throat> more than I would have. Mm -hmm. And um, they told me that I was bipolar. You know, I didn't know what bipolar was. Right. And. Um, took me a while to figure it out actually. Mm -hmm. And so they put me on, um, Prozac. Mm -hmm. Well, that helped, but it masked it. Yes. Um, yes. They would switch me, um, eventually to lithium. And when I got put on lithium, it was a whole different ball game at that point. It, it helped a lot. Mm -hmm. And it was, it was life-changing. Mm -hmm. It was like somebody washed a window mm -hmm. and you could finally see out of it. And I, you know, I, I quit taking the drugs. I went to counseling at the, at the counseling, you know, at the rehab place at night, two days a week for two years. The judge only said I had to go a year. I did random UAs for two years. I didn't have to do them that long. Right. But at that point in time, 
that was all I had. Right. Because as soon as I got home, I wasn't the same person anymore. Right. I, I wasn't. I wasn't who I was when my husband was married. Right. So it lasted three months. He beat me up and tried to steal my son. Oh. We had a son and a daughter, but only a son by him. And the bench warrant did go out, but it was an accident. And they actually apologized to me for that, which said, you don't owe me apologies. You know, I should be here. And, um, I got bailed out, but I should have still had to go through that. You know? mm -hmm. And at that time, I had called 911 on him for domestic violence. And when my co the cops that were supposed to get me were sitting down the street on one side, and here from the other side of the street come the cops that are going to get him. And he didn't know it. You know, he had no idea and that they were even there. So they come getting him and these cops come to get me and my kids are standing across the street watching both this. parents. Yeah. Both parents go mm -hmm. different direction. Mm -hmm. And then they got split up that night because one went with my, my grandma and one went with his. Mm. So it was hideous. It was hideous. Yeah. That last piece was bad. I mean, it wasn't, would never be the last piece, but I kept going to counseling because yeah. it was going to be a battle. Yeah. You know, and I knew it. And so after you're newly recovered and then you're going to go through this battle with child custody yeah. and just being newly. Yes. I mean, it just went on, seemed like forever. And I never used, in fact, I got mad because the magistrate said he didn't think I'd make it. And I said, watch me. <laughs> and that was the end of it. Don't, right. you know, don't make Yeah, don't challenge you. Don't challenge me. Yeah. No. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it, it just, but it brings home what's going on now. Yes. Because I know, I know what these people are going through. Mm -hmm. I know where they're headed. There's only two ways to go. Yeah. I started going to AA. I started doing the steps. I started getting the coins after 24 hours of being sober that I still have it. Mm -hmm. I still have all my coins from that first year that meant so much. Yeah. And when I spoke the first year, my son was only four or five and I had taken my kids with me to AA because there was a daycare. So they got to play with all the other kids whose parents were also in AA. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we played softball. I mean, there was a lot of things that we did. And I got up and talked because that's what you did on your anniversary. And at the very end, I said, my son wants to say something. I brought my kids up so they could see him because mm -hmm. they were part of that whole right. process. Yeah. And um, my son said, you know, he tugs on my dress and says, I want to say something, mommy. And I said, okay. So I lifted him up to the microphone and he said, hi, my name is Scott. I'm an alcoholic. <laughs> and I thought out of the mouths of babes, you yeah. know, I mean, so I thought maybe, you know, so my kids had learned something. Mm -hmm. They had learned that you can be sick and you mm -hmm. can get better. And, and as much as they could understand it. Yeah. You know, my daughter was older, but three years older, but my son was younger. And as they grew up, I did not hide it. Right. 
I told them when I, what I did from the time I was 12 when I started drinking to the cocaine, mm-hmm. uh, you know, everything but heroin. I never did needles. I was afraid of them. Right. That's the only reason I didn't But as do you it. said, I mean, the opioids were just as strong. So, yeah. and so easy to pop a pill, isn't it? Exactly. You know, you know needles and things are all fussy, messy, but, you know, you can pop a pill and get the same feeling. So, That's yeah. That's right. And when they called me a junkie yeah. in rehab, I thought I'd die. Mm-hmm. I, I, I thought, I'm not a junkie. You know, I mean, not, what do you mean I'm a junkie? You know, I'd never been called a junkie. What do you mean I'm a junkie? Um, I walked out of there with a different feeling about being a junkie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because I was. Well, the thing is for today, we just, I just don't know. I mean, um, you know, Jada Pinkett Smith has this red round table where they have very honest talk, you know, between her, her mother, her daughter, and the guests they bring on. And Jada, in a show the other day, admitted that she, because of the area that she was brought up in, very poor, very drug infested, that she was out there selling drugs on the street as a kid, because that was the path, right? But she had the drive and the tenacity that she wanted more. She was going to go after more. This wasn't going to be her life. And, you know, she fought for that. And I think it's until we find something that means more to us than the escape, something to fight for, then, you know, that I think then becomes that driving force for you to want to be well or change directions in life. But we have to get to a point where we bottom out, right? Where the carpet's okay. being pulled underneath us. We're flat on our ass. And it's like, you have a choice to make. Stay in hell, right? And keep paying the devil, you know, for the fire. Or rise up and go through it. And going through it isn't going to be easy. But that is the discovery of your strength. The discovery of your courage. The discovery of how... Uh, many abilities you have, how many skills you've learned from it, what you can do with it once you've risen up and stepped into your own authentic self. And then you actually discover my journey can serve someone else. My journey can help someone else either going through it or prevent them from going through it. And whether it is drugs or whether it is addiction to anything else, because addiction is addiction. You have food addiction, you have um, sex addiction, you have power addiction, We've become a very addictive um, society in this world because we haven't got that ability to love ourselves from the inside out. You know, if it's not taught as a child, if we're not in that environment that is loving and caring, we're constantly seeking for it elsewhere. And then there's this illusion that you're going to find it in the bottle. You're going to find it in a pill. You're going to find it at the bottom of the plate. You're going to find it with, with that new lover. And you're not. You can't find anything exterior, external. It has mm. to be an internal job. And I think the reason why the rug gets pulled out from people is that this is an invitation to go in. Unravel yourself. Peel away the layers. Let go of what is not serving you. Step into your own beautiful, authentic self. You are more than you're giving yourself credit for. But you can't do that unless you're willing to take the journey. And, you, you know, I had a young woman that actually went to school with my daughter. And it was very brave of her to come on and do a show on her addiction. And for her, it, you know, she was a functioning um, addictor. She worked and people just didn't see it. Um, but she ended up on the street and she said she, she was just got to that level of about to sell her body. And then it was like, no, I'm not going there. That was her bottom. She went right. to rehab 
And she said when she's gone to rehab, the first thing she does when she comes out is go and look for a fix. Her mom picked her up and she said, take me to a rehabilitation center now. I don't want to go back on that. But she had to be ready. She had to have bottomed out. She had to have got to that point where it was enough. And that's the thing with anybody in any form of addictive nature, isn't it? They yeah. have to get to that point where I'm not doing this anymore. Well, and I'm now ready to receive. There's only two ways to go. When you, st when you get to the bottom, you either climb out of it mm. or you die. Yeah. And that's just, I hate to say it, but that's it. That's really what you are facing. Yes. If you continue to do what you're doing, or if I would have continued to do what I was doing, I would have left my kids motherless. Yes. I would have had to go through the trauma or worse that I did. Um, oh, God forbid you be in a car one day or high. Yeah. Right? And, uh, and that's the thing is, is that there is no such thing as a functioning addict. That's, you're, you're functioning at your job and not yeah. at full capacity. You you're deluding you yourself. You know, it's like the, the person the you're lying to is you. It's always you. <laughs> and it took me till I was, I'm 56 now, God. But it took me until I was 54. A lot of couches a lot of therapists, a lot of AA, mm -hmm. a lot of everything. Um, and I pulled a lot together. I mean, that's how much there was. Mm -hmm. But when my husband had a heart problem, I realized that there was still a pack. A of new stuff. husband, right? Not the same one. The one I've got now. Yes. Right. Yeah. Which I met in AA. Right. Right. Kind of a, yeah. Kind of one of those romantic yeah. stories. You hear someone's <laughs> voice, you look up, you know, the, <laughs> And uh, yeah, you're not, I mean, they say two addicts don't mix, but you know what? They, they can. Yeah. Cause you know, you understand what support yeah. you need to give to each other. Yeah. Right. When yeah. I say I was in a blackout driving a car and I ended up passed out and you know, I could go on, which I will in the book, you know, yes. but I mean, you, you know, when you tell them that they understand it Yeah. because they've been there. Yeah. When you get a DUI blah, you know, the whole thing. Mm -hmm. And this is just, many many years ago when yeah. i was 18 i mean you know you wait till you're 30 and then you're you know doing something that you have to do to protect your job yeah but you know it's it's so sad and it makes me feel like i need to say something yes. and people ask me well how can you talk about that because you were arrested and you've got yeah. a record my records got sealed mm -hmm. Because I did everything and more. Mm. And the judge said, we can seal them. Right. And, and, that's, and that's the thing. I think one thing we have to understand is that if you have a drug pusher out there, they're not just kind of selling something to get their own fix, but somebody who is pushing the drugs out there, taking advantage of people that are yeah. vulnerable, then yeah, throw the book at them, please. Because they are enabling an addict and they're just doing it for profit. They don't give a damn about no. anyone else. It's, you know, it's the green stuff. But when you've got somebody that is an addict, it is always some form of pain they're covering up. It is always in place of a coping skill. And we've realized more and more that people who are doing any form of addiction, it is unravel the past. Look at their childhood. Because it, somebody who's living in a fruitful life doesn't go and take drugs or become an alcoholic because they're in the joy of life. 
how can you be in the joy of life if all you've known is trauma or pain or you've never been taught how to feel? You know, there was that wonderful movie, um, The Inside Out, which yeah. is, you know, I mean, that is a wonderful kids movie about feelings. But it, I think it, it became such a relevant movie to adults who had suppressed the feelings or didn't know what joy was, only knew what anger and pain was and resentment was, didn't know how to have the other feelings, never had been taught how to have these other feelings. It was always about suppression, suppression, suppression. Survival. Uh, right. Mm. How can you, you know, uh, step into joy and love and laughter if you're constantly in just in survival mode and, and fear? For, and we see so much of this in America right now, the mm. hate brigade, you know, the, and that all that hate rhetoric that's going out there about differences and, and um, you know, religion being different, race being different, this being different, that is coming from people, some of them ignorant, yes, but mostly it's coming from people who are living in fear. And when you're living in fear, you're going to lash out. So I think we're actually seeing a lot of the hate rhetoric out there becoming a new addiction. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it, it, I've never seen anything like that. Right, right. And, well, I guess I can't say I never have mm -hmm. because I've seen it. Mm -hmm. But it's been in a different form. Yes. And not on such a mass scale, you know, um, in, in peacetime, right? In exactly. wartime, yes. But this is supposedly meant to be peacetime. Right. Um, I, I think it, as with everything in life, isn't it? When you bottom out and, you, and you've got to face your demons, you've got to work through it. There's no avoiding it, going around under it, paying someone else off to do it for you. You can't do right. that. This is your life. You've got to go through the pain to get through the other side to actually understand what life's really about, you know, and the joy and the love and all the benefits you can have from it. But you have to be willing to work through it. And it's going to be as hard or as difficult as your participation. If you really immerse yourself into it and you really do want to get better, you'll get through it quicker. If you're going to fight and resist it all the time, you're going to make it harder for yourself. So that comes down to your choice. You decide it. This well, is enough. I'm going to right. work through this. And when you, when you're doing all that and, and you're finally at the point where you're, you know, able to say, you know, I'm doing well, yes. I'm, I'm doing better or give yourself any kind mm -hmm. of kudos. Yes. Sometimes then again, like the divorce, they'll pull the rug out from under you and you're fighting again. Yeah. But this fight is the good fight. Yes. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it's a fight for something that means something, yeah. not a fight against all the things that were suppressed for so long yeah. or not taught. Or, yeah. you know, when I, when I learned how to actually love myself, mm -hmm. um, I thought, because all my life I thought <clears throat> that's a, a stuck up vain idea. That's how you were taught. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Who do you think you are placing value upon yourself, right? Exactly. Yeah. yeah it was a bad, we were raised Baptist. Yeah. Right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, how bad can it get? Right? Yes. Um, but I mean, they, they, you know, it's also ingrained that you shouldn't have, you know, you shouldn't have any feelings for yeah. yourself at all. Yeah. Whether it's love, whether it's like, whether it's, they call it vanity, yeah. they call it everything. So it's when I grew up, you've got yeah. to be a beautiful person. And, you know, I, I would say when, when you step into self-love, you actually are stepping into service. 
because in that self-love and that abundant love, you are now helping other people. You have become a service. But when you're living in duty, you are a servant. You're in servitude. It is everything about what you can do for the people who want something from you. And there is, that is not service at all. That is slavery. Yeah. And it feels like it. Yeah. Once you're out of it. Yes. You You understand. uh, Mm -hmm. I I know. I mean, it's like racism, really. Take a look at it. It's not as bad. It's not as, it's not the same, Mm -hmm. but you know, for, for an instance, I'm, I have bipolar disorder and they pick on the mentally ill, Mm -hmm. whether you're doing well or whether you're not. Right. Um, So you begin to feel, you know, a little bit scared of what's going to happen, especially here. Yes. With all the craziness. And, you know, you, you, you kind of feel like you're sort of the, you know, you kind of start to feel like I kind of could very small in a very small way, you know, understand what it's like to be put in a category. Mm. You know, when you didn't ask to be put right. in that category and you're doing everything right. Yes. You know, that you can. Yeah. I, I and, don't belong in a box. You know, no. it's, it's like we discussed in our last fibromyalgia show. We have fibromyalgia. We are not fibromyalgia. Not you know, it is the challenge that we live with. We live with daily and we are constantly balancing. It does define how much we can do and can't do. And we have right. to live within those parameters. But it does, it's not the label I walk around with. I no. am Sarah and Sarah is this person. These are just happens to be the things that I have, I have to carry with me. And that has happened through, you know, physical trauma through my life that has uh, ended up being that way. And I think this is the thing, you know, bipolar or, or any of the other things that we, we see, depression, anxiety. Um, we so love to label people. It is an understanding of what our issue is and our yeah. challenges are. But it is not again a definition of it's what we not are. A label, yeah, yeah. yeah. And then that you know it was starting to go away. Yeah, you know, when I was in the workforce. It was just starting to go away a little. That stigma mm-hmm. about having bipolar disorder and the stigma about you know being gay. These these things were being being uh, accepted. Yes, you know. And now it's almost like we've gone I backwards. Never the civil rights movement. I'm not yes. quite over that. But, um, but I can imagine it's just like everything just going back I know. all those years and how are we ever going to un- unravel it? But then I think, you know, I thought that when it was like a mirror broken mm-hmm. in my life, you know, like somebody just took my life and, threw it on it. The floor, mm-hmm. and it broke into a million pieces and I had to figure out which pieces I was going to keep yeah. and which I were going to throw away. And, um, luckily I did that. And why, why I think the only thing that, that helped me in my life with all the struggling and all the suppression and all the abuse was the strength that I came out of that with. And some people don't, some people come out and they, and they end up dying. It's sad. It's so sad. You know, for some people it's, it's, you know, they're, 
their life story. They just have never risen up to the challenge. And you know what people say, well, what's life all about? Well, it is to rise up to whatever challenge is given to you. It is for us in self-discovery of our strength, of our courage, a discovery of what we're here for. What's our purpose? What's our contribution? And, you know, here, 98% of the people that we interview here in Self-Discovery Radio are people that have had a journey. Uh, one thing or the other, you know, the old cosmic two by four, the rug pulled from underneath them, or even just a kiss on the brow of redirect, depending. But it's all about stepping into the why you are here because of who you are, your musical instrument, becoming the I am, so you can be a part of the we are. And we can't be a part of the we are if we don't know who I am. Right. right, because it's your I am that you're bringing to the table. It's your I am that you're bringing to the orchestra. If you come in and your, you know, your chords are all off, your strings are all off, you're going to, you know, shatter the music. We have right. to step into ourselves. We have to become what we're here for, and through that strength and tenacity, and placing value on ourselves and discovering just how awesome we really are when we allow ourselves to be. Now we realize actually what humanity can really be. I think this is where we're really looking at humanity right now. We're looking at the worst scum in the world. The, the, the dregs of the lowest sewage you can think of in the world, right? And then you're looking at how beautiful and extraordinary and exemplary and how illuminating we can be. It oh, all yeah. goes down to what's the choice? Which side do you want to be on? And are you willing to work to be over on this side? Right. And without pay. Without pay. You no, know, you don't. I mean, it's not, a, it's, we don't give ourselves enough time in no. the United States where every other country does, many other countries do. Yes. And we don't give ourselves any time and there's no time afforded us. Mm -hmm. You know, so you're constantly in that work mode. You're constantly yeah. in the mode where you can't think of anything. And when I got fibro, um, they put me on Vicodin and you know, at the time I thought, Oh, you know, so I told my doctor, this is what I went through. You know, I didn't tell him about them being arrested part, I thought right. I was <laughs> yeah. but I said, this is what I've been through. And if we ever take me off of this, then we need to take me off slow. Mm -hmm. I know exactly what we need to do. And I'm fine with that. So I left and I thought, am I going to be fine with that? It's, it scared me to death. I didn't yeah. know how I was going to react, but you know, I reacted fine. And three and a half years ago, I got off. Yeah. I chose to get off. I got yeah. off on my own. No mm -hmm. doctor helped me. Mm -hmm. um, but I knew what to do mm -hmm. and where to go for help. Right. Um, you know, I, I went to my acupuncturist. I got herbs. I did yeah. everything. But I did not fall back. Right. And I, and I think that that what you're saying has a lot to do with that because mm -hmm. yes, it's a disease of the soul. Mm -hmm. That is what addiction is. Yes. And if you can fit, if you can get through the disease of the soul, some people are able to control. Yeah. Some people never will be because they, they leave parts out as yeah. they go because they're too painful. Yes. And, you know, it's too painful. Then, of course, there is the thing of shame and blame and then a lack of forgiveness. And the thing is, it's really, and it really doesn't matter if nobody else forgives you. The only person that needs to forgive you is yourself. 
And and because there are some people out there that are incapable of forgiveness because they're still living in their own trauma, their own pain. And your forgiveness of self, of doing this to yourself, is that at the time I knew no better. I know better now. So I have no excuse now. I know what other avenues I can go to that can help me when I need to. I know how to place value upon myself, the importance of myself. And when you step into that, then you're going to look for those alternatives. You're going to look for that support. And it's not a question of somebody else's opinion. That doesn't matter anymore. The opinion is of yourself. What are you choosing to do? You're going to go down that rabbit hole again? Do you remember how bad that was? This and time then, I wouldn't make it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. This time I would not make right, it. Right, exactly. You know, the other thing, though, is that, as you said, other things are going to get thrown at us along the way. And you go, oh, God, you know, can I cope with this? Haven't you given me enough? And then it's like, well, you're only going to give me what you know that I can carry. So clearly I'm strong enough to carry this. All right, let's roll up our sleeves. What yeah, am I going to do about do this one, right? <laughs> Get right. to work. Because you suddenly realize, look where I've come from. Well, look yeah, I mean, it can, be a, it can be a joy. Actually, yeah. it's funny. But at the end of the day, mine was, I had offered him half of everything. The divorce is a really good example. It was a horrible, horrible divorce. He wanted extra, you know, I mean, there was just a, two custody evaluations. She's a drug addict mm-hmm. and that. And you know, at the end of the day, I got sole custody mm-hmm. of my son as a drug recovering mm-hmm. drug addict who had done everything and more right. that she was supposed to. And that judge looked at him and said, my, my friend, you have narcissism issues underlying mm-hmm. and she is trying her best yeah. to help herself right and i thought wow but <laughs> when i tell my story i never ever ever leave out the part where just because i'm telling you this story does not excuse what i did mm-hmm. because it just does not it explains and, why you did it yeah, right. but it's, not, but it's an not an excuse for what you did, right? No, yeah. I do not excuse anymore. Mm-hmm. I do not make, you know, I, I try never to say, and I try never to say I try, I'll, I will try, mm-hmm. because usually I will try means I won't. Right. Um, you know, that I learned that years ago when I was in rehab. So all those tools, they don't leave you if you accept mm-hmm. them. They just I, help yeah. you. Yeah, it's like remember Yoda in Star Wars, do not try, just do. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. And the thing yeah. is, is when you do, it doesn't have to be at full volume. Even if you've just gone up one notch, you're doing. Right? You're yeah. doing. And that the next step becomes easier and the next step becomes easier. The I'll try means I don't really want to attempt it. I'm not sure. Is there an excuse I can put in its place? But if you say I'm willing to and, I, and you start taking that one foot in front of the other, all of a sudden you look back and go, look how far I've walked. Look how yeah. far I've come. If I can do that, I can take bigger steps. I'm feeling more confident. I'm feeling more assured of myself. And yeah. I can take those bigger steps. It's that don't sell yourself short, right? Don't sell no. yourself short. Don't ever sell yourself short. Mm-hmm. I mean, when, <laughs> I'm hoping, I, I hope with all hope that, my message will touch someone out there who either has someone in their family 
who's going through even a meth addiction. There's, there's no drug addiction that is not basically the same idea. You can't help them though. If Until they want to help, yes. you have to be able to yeah. accept that. Yeah. Um, and a lot of people have a hard time accepting it. And I don't, I don't blame them. I mean, my, my stepson, my nephew, you know, they've gone through it and they know that they can come talk to me. Yes. But they won't because they're not ready. Right. They weren't yeah. ready for help. Yeah. Um, and they and may get, and they may seek help elsewhere, which is okay. You know, especially yeah, when they're ready fine. for help, go and find it from someone. I just um, get it. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's uh, very often, of course, but when an addict is going through the last people they want to be around is family because there's still that shame feeling. And, yeah. and it's only, I think, when they've got to a certain level that they can come in and stand and speak about it, but they need to get to a certain level first. And again, as you said, they have to be ready. Um, and sometimes they don't get ready. No, no. Before. And, and uh, you know, there, there are just some people that are addicted to addiction. You know, if it's well, yeah, one thing, first... it'll be another, you know. The first step says there are some people who are inconstitutionally incapable yeah. of becoming sober. Yeah. yeah. If they knew that back in 1930 or 40, um, when they came out with AA to help the alcoholics, mm -hmm. there were just basic alcoholics that they knew what they could try and help them with. Right. When they came out with that, you know, I think they, they knew they knew way more. They're like the forefathers, you know, yes. they were able to see in the future and know right. that this isn't going to get any better. No, you know, this is only going to get worse. And the thing is, is what we are looking at today is such a disconnect in families, such a disconnect in community. You know, it used to be the communities were tighter and people would look out for each other. You knew you your know, neighbors. Yeah, you, you yeah. knew your neighbors, the village raising the child. Your kids could go out and play in the street with the other neighbors and all the neighbors would be out the window looking out for the kids. And now it's like you can't let your kid play in the yard because you're scared it's going to be kidnapped. And, or who is that kid? You don't know where they come from. And we're living in paranoia. We're living in fear. And all mm. it's done is isolated us. And then in that isolation and in that fear, it starts eating up at us. And then it brings up old memories or it brings up this, it brings up that. And then what do you do? You self-medicate. And really what we need to do is as a parent, sit down with other parents and say, I'm struggling. Anybody else struggling? How can we help each other? Right. Where is the shame in that? Why have we been put on that we need to be perfect? <laughs> Ask for help, please. That's right. Because yep. that's what community is about. Ask for help. My kid is having some stress problems at school or being bullied. How do I cope with it? I don't want to offend anyone. So therefore I'm not going to do this. No, you know, it's ask no. for help. Speak out about it because if you don't, it's going to ferment, it's going to develop problems. And then you're going to look at that issue down the road. And your ex being a narcissistic, um, I have a fabulous show on narcissism. I do invite people to look, to listen to it. It's a three part series. It talks about narcissists, sociopath, psychopath, um, and then also narcissistic parenting. And then the third show is actually where we break down all the narcissistic labels. Cause some people maybe only one or two labels, some people sure, the yeah. whole labels, right? Different degrees right. of it. But it's also understanding that is a child that was never taught empathy never taught caring, never taught how to love anyone else. They're still in that kid's survival mode, me, myself, and I at anybody else's or expense. 
And of course, yeah. you just have to look at who's in the White House to know narcissistic <laughs> at the highest level. Um, and, <laughs> yeah. You know, this is what we're talking about. And being aware, you know, as you grow up, that love, care, and attention and teaching your ch kids to care about something else is so very important. And we've got to understand if we're living in a trauma, if we're living in an inner drama, and we're hiding it by trying to be the perfect parent, our kids pick it up. They know there's something going on in there. And it's also making them hide things from you because they don't know how to express themselves. By you being honest with your kids and taking them on this journey, you've given them the gift of being able to talk about it, not be ashamed about it, that there isn't anything that you can't get through when you're willing to do it together. Yeah. My kids would always call me when they needed a ride home, mm -hmm. you know, whatever. And my kids were, I, I don't know. I don't know how I ended up with kids like that, you know, but I, I look around today and when we moved into a small town in Oregon, basically out in the country, I noticed that there were still kids riding their bike and yes. riding their skateboard and playing basketball and doing all those things. Yes. Now it's not that they don't have electronics, but there is a underlying problem with electronics yes. because they do have so many ways. And my grandson who's five has had an iPad since he was two and has known how to use that. And I told my daughter, get him off five. Yes. You know, I mean, give him a 15 minutes, you know, here and there. I yeah. don't, you know, because he was starting. Don't to, let it become the babysitter. No, because he was starting to act out. Mm. Yeah. Because, you know, you cannot even keep those kids. Yeah. From stimulated. You know, they get yeah. overstimulated and they don't know how to have time out, you know, That's time right. to be with themselves, time in silence, time in, in peace, just time in, in exploring or reading. Creativity. Yeah, exactly. Because everything has become on this because it's so easy. And, you know, we, we have to understand they have to be interactive with life. And this apparatus is uh, it's a great communication. You're walking around with a computer all the time, but we've got to remember it does not replace human interaction. And people have computer addictions, you know. I oh, mean, yeah. And, and especially the millennials. They <laughs> they, yeah, they don't know they do. But I, yeah. I see people all the time walking down the street on their phone. They're not yeah. looking where they're going. No. And have you seen the, the new monkey thing? The third monkey? See no evil, hear no evil, speak no evil. Uh, and um, now they've got text no evil, you know. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. <laughs> and it's yeah. like, yeah, you know, that we're... I've done many shows on cyberbullying because it's such a coward's way and so easy for them to blast and be na nasty or oh, take yeah. a video with someone and uh, no accountability because you're behind the screen. But I'm sorry, every single thing you do in life behind or in front or in person is something you have to be accountable for. There is no escape. You will pay the piper somewhere down the road. Yeah. Right. There's always a price. Yeah. Always a price. So my darling, when does your book come out? What is its title? How do people find it? Um, I am on now. I finally got, I was so happy. I finally got Deb spot across the whole, you know, web. Mm -hmm. So if you go to debspot.com or Deb spot, you'll see me on Facebook. You'll see my blog. You'll see, you know, I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on Alignable. I'm, I'm on all of the things that are up and coming. Yes. Um, and um, that's one way. Easy. I'm easy to find. 
and my I'm doing my blog again, which is much easier to navigate now. It's going to have health on it. It's going to have fibro on it, mental illness, and drug abuse. Mm -hmm. So those are going to be in different categories. So say you don't want to read something, you know, on that. But on the front is the name, which is trapped. Mm -hmm. uh, and everything in my life was a trap that right. I had to figure out how to get out of. Yes. It was a perfect name mm -hmm. for my book. And so um, I'm going to try and get it out by the end of the year. And I'll either go indie or I have an opportunity to go with a publisher that actually old fashioned publishes books. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so I was like thrilled with that. Mm -hmm. But, um, and I think it's going to be really, it's going to be my life. And I'm going to have to not make it into a J.R.R. you know, Martin right. novel. But it's going to tell what happens to people once they, how, when they're abused. Yeah. What can happen to trigger mm -hmm. what they do in the future, which triggers again, what they do later and again, what they might do later. Mm -hmm. And it kind of just gives this whole laid out story. And when people do hear the whole story, they're like, I can't give my worst, you know, party story anymore. You know, right. <laughs> <laughs> yours, yours be mine. Sorry, can't do it. Um, and because, you know, right. some people just have addiction that they go through, right? But, you know, you're right. given the fibromyalgia, which is said is a disease that, that is not curable, it's manageable, that's it. And yeah. you've got the bipolar, you know, and, you know, you've been through all of that. And it's like, well, how much more are you going to give her? <laughs> you know? and, then, and then abuse. And, and then abuse. abuse. Uh, you know, not only abuse as a child, but in marriages. But, but look where you are now, you know, yeah. and look how strong you are now. And look what you're doing for other people now. And this is the thing that is a reminder to people. We are our story to a point of that our story is there to help other people go through theirs. But right. we are not the result of our story anymore because we've written our own. Right. Right. And we've changed the dialogue. We've changed the verbiage. Yeah. And right. you, try and, you try and help other people really. Yes. Um, yes. You know, and I mean, anybody can find me. I've made it easy, mm -hmm. you know, um, and I, I would like to make a group page off of my page. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a lot of things that I want to do and I have to do them one at a time, which I hate because patience is the worst thing that I've ever <laughs> yeah. which I could never, ever say before 1993, you yeah. know, but yeah, patience was my nemesis. That's the thing I was given, not given. Mm -hmm. I was not given patience. So of course I load my plate up and right. You know, so it's pacing yourself one step at a time, you know, yeah. learning, learning how to dance, you know, from one thing to another of whatever comes up at the time. Right. That's, uh, and, and I think, you know, it's like, I know that I had to learn patience because, you know, when you have people with an answer, I want everybody to know it. Everybody, you know, like here it is. But again, you know, people say to me, why aren't you a 15 minute station? I said, because you cannot impart such wonderful knowledge in 15 minutes. You know, I hear it in telling the story of exactly what you went through, how you came through it, what you're doing for society now in that strength and that courage, that self-dignity, that self-love. How can that be done in 15 minutes? So my shows are for the people that are ready to hear because mm -hmm. they're ready to pick your wisdom from your tree of wisdom of in the orchard of wisdom and they're ready to apply it so i'm not there for the people looking for a quick fix okay. these shows are for people who are truly wanting to learn 
How can I help myself? How can I help others? How can I even just understand the situation? Because we've got to stop the blame. We've got to stop the shame. We've got to stop pointing fingers. Even mm -hmm. our own parents, the way they brought us up, they brought us up in their understanding, in their own pain. So we can't even place blame on there. We don't like what they did to us. No, but at but the same time, they're just doing what they understood was, right? There no. wasn't the malice there. There was just simply us all they knew. So we learn to forgive and we learn to empower ourselves so we can move forward doing what we need to do, which is inspiring others to take their own journey. That's right. And it's, it's a journey. Yes. And it's actually the best journey I've been on. I've been married now for 21 years to the same man. Mm. Um, and he's amazing. And, mm. you know, it's, it's one of those things where it's kind of like that Cinderella story. Yes. You start in the corner sweeping yes. up the dirt, <laughs> yes. and you end up being the princess, you know. Um, I, I, that's what I feel like sometimes. But what I always say, the one thing I say, and it'll be probably the beginning line of the book, mm -hmm. is children are born with a white canvas. Mm -hmm. There's been no wrong done to them, and they've done no wrong to anyone else. Mm -hmm. The only time in their lives when they're actually going, to come out with nothing there. It's the color that's thrown onto that canvas by other people throughout their lives that makes the picture of who you are. Right. So do you want your canvas to be all black mm -hmm. and red and, and all the colors that aren't good? Mm -hmm. Or do you just want a portion of that to be there and maybe later it's yellow and bright? And, mm. you know, and I always think about that. Because yeah. that's really what happens. Yeah. And it's also teaching kids that no matter what their canvas was painted, that they can take the brush and paint their own canvas. Exactly. And that's the thing is that you and you may have been victimized, but it's your choice if you wish to stay the victim. That's right. That really is your choice. Because who hasn't been victimized one way or the other at some level? And the thing is, are you, are you going to use that as an excuse? Are you going to stay there? Or are you going to say no more and I'm going to do whatever I need to do to paint my own canvas, to write my own book, to be in charge of my own choices? Where there you need to go with the flow of the universe that will lead you on its way, but to step out of the fear, to step out of that control, to step out of what has been done to you and look upon it as something that has strengthened you, that's enabled you, that's uh, giving you that platform to, to place value on your own life. I waited all these years to write this. Mm -hmm. I mean, all of these years. So I'm now an older writer coming mm -hmm. out. But the reason I did was because how can I write intelligently about something I haven't done? Mm -hmm. Once you have 24 years in and you haven't, you know, gone back out. Yeah. Um, I think that's enough time to be yeah. able to say yes. that you know something about it yeah. because yeah. I don't forget. Right. Anything. Your proof it works. Your proof that you can survive it. Right. Your proof that you can your change your life around. Your proof that you can find love again. Your, your proof that you can f survive anything that's been thrown at you. That's right. right? And, and that, you know, yeah. If you were, if, if you, um, it works if you work it. Yeah. And the old way of AA was, the best way a lot of people are scared of AA now because they put too much religion in the way that they've done it I've read mm -hmm. the new ten. 
if you go to the old 12 step, mm -hmm. it's, it's the program that I went with and there is no religious connotation in there. Right. And nor should there be, nor no, should there be, you know, it shouldn't be, be in politics. It shouldn't be in anything else. Religion, like sexual preference is a preference. You choose right. your own faith and the own no. way to worship and it no. shouldn't be in anything else uh, that is a, is a public domain because then it isolates and segregates people. It does. And, mm. and that way, you know, you can have a doorknob that's your higher power. If that's yeah. what you <laughs> yeah. no one cares. Yes. You know, no one judges yeah. you for that. Yeah. They start getting into religion and adding in the AA and then it gets, then again, we're going to end up with a mess. Well, you're seeing it in your politics, right? You know, some stupid statements about, you know, being held in cages because God wanted it. Well, I'm, Hey, baby, talk yeah, about misinterpretation. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I know. Yeah, did he come down here? Because really, I missed him. I yeah. mean, wasn't like the Dalai Lama when he came here. Yeah. Well, as they say, you know, uh, uh, Jesus will rise again, and I agree, but not in person, but within us. That's you know, right. We step into our godly presence, which means switching on that uh, godly consciousness of kindness and love and caring towards one another. That is the, the presence of the conscious of God. And when we step into that, it's not about what the faith or umbrella is, the title is. It's That's about right. your presence, your resonance of kindness, caring, love. And when you step into that, you, there is no place for hate. There is no, no place for, for fear. There is no place of that. In that state of love, all you're going to do is empower, care for, and show kindness. And that's the elevation that we need see, to see more of. So, yeah. Okay. Well, my darling, so it is debspot.com. Correct. Okay. And, yeah. and across your social media is Deb, debspot.com yeah. or Facebook yeah. Deadspot and all of that. Great. Um, and then yeah. obviously, the, will you be doing a pre-sign-up of the book when you get there? Yeah. So, depending on how they do it, how I do it, there right. will be, um, I, I'm, I would like people to sign up with their um, right. emails on the website. I don't use information for anything else. Right. I'm very safe, but basically because once the book comes out, I'm going to be giving some free copies out mm -hmm. and I want to make sure, you know, it goes that, to the people that really need it. Yeah. Yeah. It goes yeah. to the people that, um, you know, that have been with me. Yeah. And stuff by yes. Me. Yes. And there are, and there are people who, who will, you know, and there are some people who do. Yeah. I just don't know they're there because a lot of times people don't want to make a comment. And I understand that. Mm -hmm. So as long as they're getting there, I don't care. Uh, and they've got to remember if they email you, it's private. If they go through Messenger or okay. Facebook, it's private. Nobody else is seeing that. No. And you can have a dialogue with you. They can ask you questions. They can come out to you. You know, it's okay if you're not ready to do it publicly, but you, you know, you want to tell someone somebody here right in front of you being there done that look where she is today so right. this is the person to speak to there will be no judgment but you have to also remember this stepping into it and saying i'm wishing to step out of that lifestyle i'm wishing to take the path you have to remember this you have to take that accountability of your action and you have to own it this is your choice there's no backing down there's no, no. blaming someone else if you want a better life own it be it step into it right well i think well i think it's you know i mean i'm very i'm excited about it but i know but the one thing i can say about writing a book on yourself on your life especially when there's trauma involved yeah 
is you have to go back. And it's taken me a long time because yeah. I've had to go back and, and really live through that all mm -hmm. over again to a point. But I, but I haven't fallen apart. Exactly. You know? and, and so I looked at that and I thought, I have come right. a long yeah. way. When you can look back at what's happened to you without any pain attached to it, you know, without any blame or upset or attached to it or hate, mm -hmm. and you just see it for what it was, you know, this happened to you, you've learned from it, you've become more than it, you know, that's when you really know you've detached from it, you have moved on. And so, but we know sometimes we do have to go through it in order to let it go. And then when we do, we just realize that's, it doesn't have that effect on me anymore. So I can talk about it. People say, how can people who have gone through trauma be talking about it? It's because they've reached that level where they're talking about something that's happened to them, but they're not attached to that anymore. They're not living it. Right. They're not living it. They're not repeating it. It is just something they've managed to internally let go. And they're speaking about it because now it is somebody else's story. They're trying to invite out to help them tell their story to release their pain. So, yeah. That's right. Well, thank you for doing it. Thank you. I can't wait for your book to come out and, uh, you know, if it's stepping up and willing to tell that story because, you know, as you said, so many in the past would be so judgmental and it's like, it's, if you knew how many people out there are hiding and they're high officials or the celebrities, they're your doctor, you know, they're hiding so well behind this. And if you, you know, if, if we were more open about it, more people would be open about the fact that they need help. So let's leave judgment, persecution, and blame away. And let's step into that kindness, love, and caring and say, how can I help? And you have to be willing to take the, uh, the judgment that's going to come your way, which I'm fine with that. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, not everybody's going to agree. Not everybody's going to right. you know, ever feel the same way. But I lived it. This is how I got through it. And maybe it's not the right way for you to get through it. But I don't care yes. if people go a completely different path. They're going to. It's their journey. Mm -hmm. But I just want to make sure that they know that you can come out of it. Yeah. And you can be okay and have a good life. Yeah. It's good. not about the how necessarily. It's about your why. And your why is because you need to step into your own life, your own meaningful purpose, because that's your service to humanity. Right. And stepping into that love. And when you do, then you get it. Then you understand. Okay, now I know what I'm here for. That's right. <laughs> well, thanks so much, Deb. It's been great to have you back on again. As I said, please go back and listen to her Faber-Malder story where she shares oh, wow. about how, how she you know, um, lives with that, what she does, the challenges. And... Uh, um, and, you know, being a fiber milder person myself, you know, it, it, oh, it is, know. you know, it is, um, you know, juggling, you know, but, you know, it, again, it's like, we're not going to let it get in our way, you know, it may <clears throat> slow us down or it may do this or that, but like everything else in life, you find another way to that's do what right. you need to do. Right. That's so right. yeah, That's exactly right. <laughs> okay. Thank you so much for being with us here, love. And to everyone else out there, remember you too can come clean the only way you're going to get clean is to step up and say i can't do this anymore i won't do this anymore i need the help and the yeah. first step is being able to say that and even if you don't know which help to go to right now say it say it because when you ask for that help i promise you they always say the teacher will appear when the student is ready 
And I'm, and I'm here if anybody exactly just wants to say it to somebody that they don't know. Right. Yes. <laughs> you know, sometimes yes. that's safer. Yeah. So. And the encouragement and the belief in someone, sometimes that's all they need. Right. Yeah, so true. thanks a lot, love. Okay. Bye Thank for you. now. Until everyone, Bye. until next time, folks. And, and, yeah. <laughs> and yeah, uh, until next time, when, we, when the book comes out, we'll do more and see the response That's on right. it. We'll do the bipolar piece. Yeah, time. exactly. Exactly. And uh, so, folks, you know, and also remember to share this because you don't know who is going through this. Even if you suspect somebody might be having some issues in life or even facing a trauma, share the show. Have a conversation mm -hmm. about it. Listen to it with friends. You will find at the end of that show, there'll be somebody there who's willing to open up. And there's yeah. no judgment there. That mm. has to be left out the door. It's openness yeah. because everybody goes and does something to hide the pain. And, and when we're I, willing to talk about the pain, then we step into courage. And that's when we need to support one another. That's right. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate it. My pleasure, darling. My pleasure. Okay. So until next time, folks, be kind to yourself. Bye for now. For more wonderful shows like this, please go to selfdiscoveryradio.com, podcast and see our lineup. And if you wish to support us, we have a funded button. Please stay tuned for our next show.